Oh, guys, I don't know. This movie really grossed me out. I mean, the severed limbs and everything, that was totally fine. But did it have to have all those jizz monsters? What are you talking about? What jizz monsters? You know, the jizz monsters. The the big animals that are covered in this, like, red, slimy, writhing, acidic death goo. Are you okay, man? Is everything good with you, like... Physically? What do you mean? Let's just, uh, let's just get on with talking about the movie. Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Molkel, here with my natural co-hosts. <laughs> I'm Jack Olander, a squealing hog who's lost all divinity and become the prey for hungry man. <laughs> I was wondering what all that squealing was. <laughs> And I'm Chelsea Hollowell, a vengeful forest spirit. This I do know. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, everybody, this week, we've got quite a treat for you because we'll be talking about 1997's Studio Ghibli classic, Princess Mononoke, directed by Hayao Miyazaki and starring different people depending on uh, which audio track you listen to we watched the american version that had claire danes jillian anderson billy crudrup uh crud crudup well i don't know don't ask me <laughs> maybe maybe we'll just skip his name i think uh, we'll have to censor that <laughs> let's see there was keith david i'm not billy bob thornton billy bob thornton thank How you the fuck could you Forget about him. <laughs> because his voice just blends so naturally into any soundscape that, like, it's just, like, part of the environmental noise. The implied Billy Bob? Yes, exactly. You made that name up. <laughs> Billy Bob can't be real. <laughs> I'm not sure if he is. Have it's a ever, fantasy. <laughs> have you ever seen him in the same room as Superman? Oh, God, I don't know. <laughs> Well, before we get into talking about the deep dive stuff for the movie, I'm sure Chelsea has a prepared, pre-written, and perfectly concise summary ready to go. That's right. Here's your summary for Princess Mononoke. Bunch of crazy shit happens. The end. <laughs> Bang. Gun. The end. So, in this movie... We follow Prince Ashitaka of the Amishi tribe, a secluded, secret tribe of people who live in balance with nature. And he is cursed one day after fighting with a demon. And the wise woman, something of a shaman from their tribe, tells him that he is going to have a painful disease and then die. But he can meet his fate to find out why the demon visited their village and what caused 
this god to become a demon. It's okay, kid. You got totally unfairly fucked, but you gotta get the hell out of town. Sorry. Yeah, he's exiled. He can never return. <laughs> it's not that we don't love you. We just want you to get out. Right. And so he sets off on his quest to find the great forest spirit to hopefully lift his curse and find out what is plaguing the forest and turning what is natural demonic. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so he meets some characters along the way. Jigo, a simple monk, nothing else to see here. Nope. Totally normal, everyday monk, just like every holy man I've ever met. He meets Lady Iboshi when he gets to Iron Town, and a wolf girl named San, who's part of the wolf tribe. It's a small tribe. And of course, he's accompanied by his ever-faithful Yakul, a red... What is it called? Elk. A red elk. Best character in the film. Yeah. So loyal. So true. <laughs> so thick. So yes, he finds his way to the Great Forest and finds out that they're in a war. The forest spirits are in a war with Lady Iboshi and the people of Iron Town, And it turns out that civilization is encroaching upon the sacred forest and humans are out of balance with nature in this region. And so the forest spirits are fighting back to keep the dirty humans at bay. <laughs> Good plan. Yeah. Meanwhile, there are other lords who are at war with Lady Iboshi at the same time who are trying to take Iron Town away from her. So a place she helped other people build from the ground up. And Jigo, we find out, that monk, he's playing all sides. He's actually working for the emperor. He Ooh. he wants to take the head of the great forest spirit. And he doesn't even know why the emperor wants the head. He just knows that he's been paid a lot of money to find it. Immortality question mark. Yes, perhaps. He, I think he knows why the Emperor wants him to do it. He just doesn't know if he believes that the immortality thing's going to work out. He just doesn't care. Right. He just cares about money. He doesn't care about the spirit world and the world of humans being at, at balance or harmony with one another. That's not entirely fair. He also cares about reputation, prestige, glory. Like, it's not just about money. Okay. <laughs> So there's a great battle between Lady Iboshi's people and one of the forest spirit tribes, the boar tribe. And because of Lady Iboshi's guns and their iron that is unnatural, they are able to massacre the boar's warriors of the boar tribe. And while they're in retreat, Lady Iboshi and Jigo take a band of warriors to find the great forest spirit, and Akota, the great boar god, leads them to the forest spirit shrine, the sacred pool, and he's going there to try to heal himself, and Lady Iboshi and Jigo are following him to try to kill the forest spirit and claim his head, and on the way there, some of Jigo's warriors are disguised as boars, and they... Disguised as in wearing the corpses of dead boars. Yeah, it's pretty gross. 
And it seems that just by touching Okoto, the boar god, they turn him into a demon and fill him with hate. It seems like human touch befouls sacred things in this movie. That tracks. Yeah. And so he charges towards the pool as a demon with San, who was trying to help him get to the place to heal, and she gets caught in the crossfire. And so she's kind of becoming a demon, too, as all these writhing worm-like beings are engulfing the both of them. And once they get to the pool, Moro, the wolf goddess, and San's adoptive mother is there, resting, waiting for Lady Iboshi so that she can bite off her head. Finally. She's been waiting so long for that. Yep. And once she realizes that San is in trouble and is going to die, she uses the last of her strength to save her daughter from the demon boar god. Giving up those head-biting dreams. Yep. And the great forest spirit does show up and kills both of them because they were kind of dying anyway. And when a god is going down... And they can become a demon if they let fear and hatred take over their minds. And I think he wanted to avoid that. And Mora was ready to die. She had consigned herself to the fate of death. Yes. And while the great forest spirit is transforming into his form as the Nightwalker, Lady Iboshi shoots him twice and takes his head off. And suddenly... He he shoots magical goo out everywhere that kills everything it touches. <laughs> and he becomes a headless walking goo beast trying to find his head. Ah, sounds like every Saturday night to me. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so... Jigo has a large container that he's taking the head away in, and he orders three of his men to help him carry it, and they're running away as the forest spirit in Nightwalker form is seeking them and spreading everywhere throughout the forest, unfortunately killing everything it touches in its effort to find its head. And Sometimes it really do be like that. Even though Moro was dead, her head detached and wriggled its way toward Lady Eboshi and made a swipe, but she missed her head and she took off her right arm instead. Ah, disappointing. So Ashitaka and San go after Jigo and his men to get the forest spirit's head back because they know that if human hands return it, then all will be well again. (laughs) Kind of. (laughs) Jigo and his men run as fast as they can. They're going up hills. They're getting really sweaty. They actually make it all the way back to Irontown, which, as far as I understand it, is miles away. Meanwhile, they're running the entire time from this death goo. And the forest spirit basically knows where its head is, and it's coming for them the entire time. You always know where your head is. And they bring all this disaster with them to Irontown, to the armies that are fighting there. They basically break up the battle that was happening over Irontown because the goo monster just runs through and people run away or it kills them. And people have to abandon Irontown and water seems to stop this goo from spreading. 
So people are congregate from Irontown are congregating in the water to escape it. And there is a small skirmish between Ashitaka-san, Jigo, and his men as they're fighting over the head on the hillsides around Irontown. And eventually, when it they're surrounded by the goo, it's kind of like hot lava. You die instantly when you touch it. <laughs> yeah. And they're on a rock, and Ashitaka convinces Jigo to give the head back because they kind of have no other option at this point. So Jigo surrenders, and he lets them have the head back, and Ashitaka and San offer up the head to the great forest spirit, and it takes the head and cures both Ashitaka and San of their curse. But leaves a subtle reminder of uh, a scar still on Ashitaka's hand. Yes. So he never forgets the terrible goo. <laughs> and what hatred and fear can do to human hearts. And we close the movie with the great forest spirit disappearing as a, a giant gale, but leaving behind greenery and new growth and rebirth throughout the whole forest. So it leaves us on a hopeful note. The end. Unless you got killed by the goo monster. Well, they can always build again. Not the dead people. No. <laughs> they're still dead. Yeah. You can make more living people. Right. That's true. That's a good point. <laughs> All right. Well, then, why don't we head into the delve? Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of Princess Mononoke. Now, guys, before we get too far into talking about the content of the film, I just want to share a fun story that I read on IMDb about the localization of this movie. So, professional and verified asshole Harvey Weinstein was one of the people who was behind bringing this movie to the U.S., but he wanted to cut content from the movie. And Miyazaki was not having that shit and basically said, like, no, you, you can't, like, just edit my movie and, and fuck with it however you want. Like, I've had that happen to me before. I'm not letting it happen again. <laughs> the way he communicated that was by angrily walking out of the room. Were they in the same room together? Yeah, he yeah. walked out of a meeting. They were in a meeting together. Okay, well, that's the way to do that. I mean, if you're in a meeting with Harvey Weinstein, the safest thing you can do is walk out of the room anyways. <laughs> yeah. um, so a little while later, uh, Weinstein got a package from Japan that contained a katana with the words, no cuts etched into the blade, which is just the most brilliant fuck you that's been delivered in the history of Hollywood, I think. I don't know. I mean, that, that could be a long list of great fuck yous, but that's a real good one. Well, it worked. They released Princess Mononoke with the original length that the way that Miyazaki wanted. And later, when people asked Miyazaki about this exchange, he just kind of smiled and said, I defeated him. Ugh. <laughs> uh brilliant it's so good i love that mentality and it it makes sense yeah <laughs> i mean the most horrible monster in this entire film is harvey weinstein right 
The only irredeemable villain. <laughs> yeah, you know, this movie is very interesting. It's it's complicated. It's very intricate. There's not a clear enemy. There's not a clear villain. But I guess we could talk about that more in our other segment. But just to kind of give people a little teaser, you know. The lines are very fuzzy in this film. Yeah. Our perspective character, Ashitaka, comes from a group of people that live in balance with nature. And they respect the gods of the forest. They have certain protocols for showing reverence and that they honor nature beings. And they try to reason and negotiate before resorting to combat. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why Ashitaka is an interesting protagonist. He is not quick to violence. He will retaliate if attacked, but is regretful if anyone gets hurt. And his first instinct is to try to work out problems and to, like Chelsea said, negotiate with people. Yeah. It seems to allow this perspective about living in balance with nature permeates their whole culture and their way of seeing the world and it seems to give Ashitaka a unique perspective in several different ways like when he's in the forest he's able to see the beauty and magic in nature he trusts the nature spirits he's not afraid of them he isn't combative with them yeah other people who see like the kadama the little tree spirits are freaked out and think that they're hiding something or that they're trying to hurt them in some way, but Ashitaka knows better. Yeah, he said that those little Kodama, the cute little tree spirits, they're good luck omens and that they're friendly creatures. And he even points out, see Yakul? He's totally calm. That means we have nothing to fear. <laughs> the elk know. Yeah. And they were right. It was a sign of good luck because... The little tree spirits led them to the healing waters of the great forest spirit. So, like, he was totally right, too. Yeah. And it, they were very cute following them along. I mean, it was kind of funny. Just It was played for comedic effect, the, the guy that was afraid of them. Because they were leading them through the forest to Iron Town because uh, Ashitaka asked them very politely for help. And, um... His friend was just like, oh, there's thousands of them. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a funny little bit. But yeah, they did actually help them and they were right to trust them. You're right. Jack. Yeah, it is cool, though. Like you're saying, there's kind of a juxtaposition as one of the themes between expanding civilization and nature. And there are these tiny, cute little friendly spirits, which are a very good sign. They're good luck and very yeah. helpful. And he's worried they're going to, like, kill him. They're so disconnected from the actual forest in Irontown, even though they're right next to each other. Yeah. They're kind of... The people of Irontown are kind of captivated by their leader. She's very charismatic. Yeah, very cult of personality. Yeah, Lady Iboshi. It's interesting because the movie kind of makes a clear juxtaposition between this Iron Towner who's afraid of the forest spirits, but really 
what he should be afraid of is the most dangerous threat in the whole land, other human beings. Because later in the film, his town is attacked by the Emperor's men. Actually, no, sorry, not by the Emperor's men. It is uh, attacked by Lord Asano's men and the Emperor's uh, mercenaries led by Jigo basically are totally willing to let the Iron Towners get killed as fodder in their war. Yeah. And so something I thought was interesting was since Ashitaka is our perspective character, we kind of are naturally willing to kind of adopt his perspective as our own. And so you would think that he would maybe fight with the nature spirits against Iron Town in another version of this story. But it's really interesting because this narrative has more nuance to it. He's kind of in the middle, you know? He kind of makes friends on both sides, the humans in the human civilization and amongst the forest spirits and, and forest dwellers. He just wants everybody to live in harmony and peace and to get along. So he doesn't villainize the people of Irontown. He goes in, he sees how they live. He sees that Lady Iboshi is a humanitarian at heart, for the most part. She gives the marginalized and downtrodden a chance. She houses lepers there and gives them a job and treats them like human beings and not to be shunned. And same with women who used to work in brothels. She bought out all these women's contracts and gave them a trade and working in the Iron Forge. Yeah, it's uh, Iboshi is a complicated character because she's set up as this leader of Iron Town and when we first meet her, we're not quite sure what her angle is. And then we learn about how she is manufacturing these guns that are killing the forest spirits. At the same time, she's kind of protecting herself and her people. She's obviously done very good things for her community. And later on, we see her like killing the, the forest spirit. But, you know, she's not just a black or white character. She's not somebody whose morality can easily be defined in the context of the movie she's antagonistic and sympathetic at the same time you know that really makes me think that this narrative and this movie cleave closer to how conflicts happen in real life there's a lot of verisimilitude to this story in the way there's not a clear-cut villain or or hero Everybody has this kind of nuance to their character and their agendas. So I think a great scene to kind of sum up what we're saying right now, you know, how all the characters Ashitaka sees as being these kind of like pure creatures, but he also sees that there's this kind of hatred and anger in all things. And he kind of discovered that when he fought with the boar god demon in the beginning. And the great scene that shows this is when San and Lady Iboshi are fighting to the death in the square. And Ashitaka comes and he stops them. He grabs hold of them both. He says there's a demon in both of you. Because he sees them both as these pure kind of forces of good. But they're trying to kill each other. 
and they both kind of have lost sight of what's going on. San wants to kill all humans, and Iboshi is just trying to kill the whole forest. So it's it's worth noting that in the scene when he says that they both have demons inside of them, his literal demon is manifesting itself in a way that only happens in this scene, which is like exploding in these writhing ghostly tentacles whipping out of his arm. Exactly. Yeah. So when a guy with a demonic tentacle monster in his arm tells you that you have a demon inside of you, makes you think. Yeah, exactly. And his manifestation of his inner demons is a visual representation of how he views everyone i think because there's a scene when lady eboshi is showing him the lepers that she takes care of and he gets mad at her for cutting down the forest and his demon arm starts acting up and starts trying to draw his sword to cut her down but he holds himself back and i gotta say he's one of the most peaceful calm and understanding guys you know yeah. But even he has this, like, demonic flair in him that he has to hold down. Right. And, yeah, it starts physically showing itself. But I think that really put it into perspective for his character, where he's kind of noticing the same thing as in all these other people as well. They just don't get superpowers from it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, he sees that there's light and dark in everyone, and part of life is the constant struggle between the two or not really struggle is not totally what i want to say but the interplay between the two maybe they're always at odds with each other kind of but there you can find a kind of balance and i think that is what ashitaka and his people always strive for it's an ideal to work for it's kind of something that gives you hope i mean know? it's interesting ashitaka is a great character because he gets this what amounts to a death sentence and doesn't let it overtake him. He decides that the best thing he can do is go out, try in any way he can to find a cure. But even if he can't, he is still going to be a force of good in the world. He's going to find out what happened to these forest spirits, what it was causing them so much rage and pain, and try to put a stop to it. So he was going to meet his fate as his shaman challenged him to do. Yeah, it is very cool. And there's a scene where when he first realizes his demon arm is like super powered, he shoots a samurai's like arms off and he shoots a dude's head off with arrows. And a samurai calls him a demon. Yeah. And then later in the film when San is gripping, yeah, when San is gripping the demonic Akoto, She's kind of being consumed by the demonic jism all over his body. <laughs> and she's like, yeah. oh, please, Okoto, I don't want to become a demon. We haven't really seen that humans can become demons aside from the main character. And that kind of put it in perspective, a little more balance between humans and nature. I thought that was neat. Just the idea that humans can become demons. Right. Yeah. I also want to point out here... Going back real quick to Lady Eboshi and her motivation and everything. I mean, Chelsea brought up how she has purchased the contract of these, the contracts of these sex workers. She's given these lepers sucker and a place to live. She's given these people work. This community of people who have been rejected by the rest of society. And 
at the end, we see Lady Eboshi killing the forest spirit, but she seems to genuinely believe that that could actually be helpful for her people. She says that she thinks that the blood of the forest guardians might help cure the lepers, might take the demon out of Ashitaka. Like, she is driven by good intentions, even if she executes them in reprehensible ways or ways that we might view as reprehensible. The sad part is that through the actions of San and Ashitaka, we learn that you can petition the Great Forest Spirit for healing, and it is a benevolent force. It heals people. So it could have healed her people if they only visited its pool and showed it respect. It's hard to say, though, because it didn't heal Ashitaka the first time of his demonic possession. It just healed him of the mortal wound of the bullet through his chest. It, there might have been a reason for that, though. True. Maybe he needed that force to still kind of learn a lesson, it seemed like. Yeah, it's possible. And even when it did heal him, it left a scar. It didn't have to. The first time it healed his bullet wound, there was no scar. It's true. It could also have been a message that the powers that kind of came from his demonic mark were useful to the rest of his plans. The super strength helps him multiple times after that when it comes to saving the godhead. Yeah. And, like, fighting people off and saving a wolf from being crushed by boar bodies. Without the demonic strength, he would have had to go about saving the day much differently. So perhaps there's a message to that, kind of like what you were saying about balancing the light and the dark. Uh, in a situation where he's surrounded by demons and, a, like, a world torn apart by war and hatred, perhaps tapping it, it like, using... You gotta use that partially in order to kind of fix things. It's hard to say. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. But also, it seems like his demonic strength doesn't really ever help him that much. It does save him from the mercenaries in the beginning, but he regrets it. And later on, it's not enough to pick up the boars off of the wolf. The townspeople see how much he believes that the wolf will help them and they go lift the the wolf out of the, the pile of corpses. So like the strength is helpful, but it's not like it's something that he has to use to be better than anybody. He still relies on other people to give him strength and for his passion and his belief to kind of carry people to do good things. I think you're definitely right. And it's a thing that comes from motivation, right? Because they say demons are fueled by hatred and anger. And right. we mostly see the strength being used when he's frustrated or in combat. Yeah, he doesn't give in to the dark side. Yeah, later in the movie, he shoots people again and they, you know, they explode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as people are wont to do when hit by arrows. He does... He does warn them, though. He tells them to leave, and he repeatedly tells them not to attack him, and they don't want to do this. So he waits till the last moment to attack them, and it's mostly in self-defense. And he doesn't just gun them all down just because he can. Like, one guy 
flees and he lets him go. I love that. Like the two guys are charging in after Ashitaka has killed two others and they yeah. kind of like crest over a mountain and he kills one of them and the other guy's just like, nope, I'm good. I I just saw that demon arm like fire an arrow at 5,000 miles per hour. I'm going to just go now. Sorry for being an inconvenience. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was trying to be vague in case that was one of your epic moments. Yeah, yeah. No, you already you already spoiled my epic moment. <laughs> oh, I did? Epic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but maybe, I mean, this is something that's underlying a lot of the themes that we've talked about, so maybe we should talk about some class struggle. Yeah. Oh, I would love to talk about some class struggle. This is a new segment oh, yeah? I want to do would? on. <laughs> this is a new thing I want to do on the show where I talk about class struggle in these fantasy movies. Sounds like a good idea, but I'm not convinced. You're going to have to explain it to me. All right, well, let me walk you through it. Now, in this movie, <laughs> the class struggle is kind of in the background. We right. see some very obvious signs early on, especially like Lady Eboshi. She is taking people of these disregarded classes, the lepers, the sex workers, giving them, I think, what amounts to like a middle class life working yes. in the, or certainly like, Solid working class, like they have everything taken care of that they need, and they don't fucking have rent or anything. <laughs> yeah, they work. They're in this town. It's kind of a socialist paradise to some extent. Like they're working, they're fed. Yeah. They have free choice of like who to marry and everything. Right. Like the women are given sexual autonomy. Yeah, which and is very nice. Autonomy uh for what work they want to do and um well kind of I mean the everyone works they at the iron. Play. Well, I mean that is the main job there, but there are others who work like in the laundry and the kitchens and stuff. And they're trained for military too. The women are taught how to shoot and defend. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the, everyone in town carries their own weight. It's mostly egalitarian. There's some sexual division of labor, but it's all egalitarian in terms of uh, rights and choice and stuff like that. Some of the men, at least in the... Now, I, now, there could be gaps between the different versions of this movie. We right. watched Neil Gaiman's English adaptation, which I know is at least slightly different from the literal translation, but that stuff more had to do with how like forest spirits and stuff were talked about. I don't know what might have changed in the Irontown stuff. We do get a little bit of a feeling from the men of Irontown that they might be, at least some of them might be a bit resentful about the women's autonomy. There's the scene in the tavern where the women are kind of catcalling Ashitaka yeah. and the men are feeling a little, let's say, butthurt about not being the center of attention. Yeah, and they say that Lady Iboshi spoils them, and that's why they're like that. And then Ashitaka says, oh, but I think it's great. You know what they say, happy women make a happy village. <laughs> that was a fun line. Yeah, that was <laughs> awesome. And then he wants to, you know, Ashitaka is this character who in so many ways is the bridge between different sides of a conflict. Of a conflict. He is a male who is interested in the work that the women of Irontown do, like running the smelter and stuff. Right. He is from this other tribe, 
and he wants to kind of be the intermediary between the forest spirits and the people of Iron Town. He transcends the boundaries in a lot of ways. He's a human with this demonic power inside of him. And he is kind of from a town that seems to be without class. He goes to a town where there, there is, is a little bit of a hierarchy, though. There's a bit of a hierarchy based on the work that people do there, for sure. He's a prince. Okay, good point. And I mean, a, we just don't see enough of his town right. to get a good assessment. And there's a shaman, there are warriors, there are farmers, like there are different classes. It's just that it, it seems a little bit more balanced and harmonious, a little idyllic. Yeah, it's a little idyllic for sure. It seems uh, more like it comes naturally, like your role. Yeah, right. possibly. Yeah. yeah. But so now he goes to Irontown, because I want to get back into talking about class more specifically. Right. Here. Irontown is for... What it's worth, even if there are disagreements, if people don't totally see eye to eye, this is like this industrious, self-made town where the life you had before doesn't define you as who you are now. They are in the middle of this conflict between the Emperor and Lord Asano, and they are literally used as fodder in this war. When Jigo shows up with this proclamation from the Emperor, Iboshi shows the emperor's letter to some of the women there and the women are like the emperor who's that is he important should i care like what this guy wants yeah like they don't they're they see themselves as being removed from these struggles of class like these two warring superpowers the lord and the emperor who are going to use the people of iron town as pawns but they don't want anything to do with that the people of iron town just want to be left alone to thrive on their own terms, but they are dragged into this conflict because Lady Eboshi still has this connection to Jigo, who has the connection to the Emperor. Well, she must be a noble of some type. She's a lady. She has had formal training. She she reads and writes. She's a warrior. She comes from the noble class. And she brings this history of violence with her in the form of creating firearms. She knew how to create gunpowder and guns and everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's also a good scene where Iron Town is under siege by the samurai and they have messengers at the front gates kind of demanding to talk to the people in charge. And the women defending Iron Town shout back like, you know... You didn't care about this place when it was just starting up, but now that it's worth something, you're going to try to take it from us. Yeah. And it's kind of like you had your shot to be a part of it, pretty much. I love that scene, too. And then the man get the messenger gets upset, and he's like, someone needs to teach you women how to show respect. Yeah, they ain't having any of that shit. And then they retort, oh, respect? What's that? Yeah, we haven't gotten any of that for... Since we were born, or something. Oh, like it's that. great. I, I, I have to say, like. And then they shoot at him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's a little mean, but I mean, I, I, on the one hand, I get it. They don't like being part of this system of hierarchy where they have to kowtow to someone else. Now that they've lived another life and they've seen another way of living, they much prefer a position where they have more power <laughs> over yeah, what happens to that. their bodies and their lives you know <laughs> i mean i think the women in brothels back then were generally just slaves so like yeah they were giving that guy as much respect as he was giving them you know even when shooting yeah. at him 
Right. He was just planning on going and killing them all anyway. Yeah. Yeah, they were trying to use the people of Irontown as fodder in this war. They were going to have them be the frontline soldiers. Jigo uses them to, like, set off landmines and shit and, like, get killed before his mercenaries have to be killed. And Lady Iboshi, I don't think she would have stood for that, but I don't know if she saw it happening. She, at, at one point, kind of removes herself and kind of takes the stance that she's done everything she can for Irontown. Now their fate is in their own hands, which is kind of leaving them to the wolves. Not, well, literally and figuratively. Nice. But she is intent on paying back this debt to Jigo, which I thought was an odd motivation for her, but maybe there is something that I just missed in why that was important for her to to do that. I think maybe... Lady Iboshi was trying to prove a point to herself. I think he also threatened her at some point. I don't exactly remember what the threat was, but he kind of sarcastically said something and then sarcastically said afterwards, oh, I'm sorry, did that come across like a threat? You remember that? I think I think it was, it had something to do with being able to come back with a giant force to just take Iron Town away from her. Yeah. So maybe she thought that what she was doing was protecting the people that she had set up. That's the impression I got. I think not she... set up, but like helped out. Yeah. the The impression I got was that if she went along with what Jigo wanted and what the Emperor wanted, they would kind of leave her alone again to her own devices. And so, in her own way, she was still trying to protect her people. Yeah, and she wants to take over the world. You know. <laughs> Classic motivation. She says it multiple times. Completely relatable. She also says she knows how to kill a god. You just can't fear him. Yeah. The trick is not to fear them. Yeah. Before we move on, I just want to point out something that really stood out to me the whole time. And we've touched on it throughout our conversation, but I really just want to make sure that I get this out there. The way this movie handles a conflict and perspectives and how there's not two sides in a conflict. There are many sides. Every actor has their own motivations, their own needs and causes that they're related to. This film handles that so much better than other film than other media. It handles the like politics and the wheelings and dealings better than I think a lot of like fiction that really tries to like make itself gritty and realistic. A lot of times in something like even like a Game of Thrones or something, even something pretty well written, the fact that people are motivated by like these abstract concepts a lot of times in those movies or like they believe that they're part of a side. I think this movie does it so much better where there are so many angles. There's so many people competing and there's different sides competing for the same resources and the same objectives, but it doesn't have to be spelled out for you. Like, you get it in the backstory of what are people are talking about. It doesn't get kind of handed to you on a silver platter. You have to unpack the different perspectives in the movie. Ashitaka has his, like, desire to be this intermediary. Iboshi wants to create a society that's free of the restraints of the society that she comes from. 
Jigo wants to find glory in the eyes of the Emperor. Jigo's mercenaries are working for the Emperor, but Lord Asaka, um, Lord Asano's men are fighting to kind of overthrow this power structure. And the spirits of the forest are outside of all of that and have their own motivations and everything. The spirits of the forest are far from a united front. Yeah, I was going to say that they all have their own perspectives. They can't be lumped together. They all have different ways of dealing with the situation and different perspectives on how to interact with humans and what to do about this threat to their ecosystem. Yeah, Akoto would just assume kill every human. Moro doesn't like humans, but would be content if they just left. And the forest spirit... I mean, who fucking knows what the forest spirit wants? The god of life and death. He's kind of unknowable. And, like, the Kadama seem pretty cool with people. So the god of life and death is pretty interesting. It does seem kind of like a greater entity that is unknowable. Ashitaka says after its death, like, oh, it's not dead, it's life itself, so it still has a plan for us. But... Great point you can kind of discern the nature of the thing from its actions, right? It kind of heals every once in a while people in order to push an agenda. It heals Ashitaka's gunshot wound, but not the curse like we mentioned earlier. And the same when the boar god and the wolf goddess are both kind of turning into demons. The god of life kisses them and they both die. Yeah. So it's kind of like that, yeah, that action just like screams morals, right? And thoughts, personality. Yeah, and I got the impression that he was trying to maintain balance because they could have been major forces of destruction if they had been allowed to become demons. Definitely. I mean, Nago, the first crazy boar god that, that we visits meet, the amishi tribe who attacks the amishi tribe is yeah just chaos personified by the time he has been despoiled by the iron bullet like it drove him to just be a creature of pure destruction that is very likely what moro and akoto would have become something i i did have a question about this that we just brought up i was kind of confused uh by one point uh, surrounding the forest spirit, the great forest spirit. Why did he die even after he got his head back? He kind of seemed like he healed and he his head reattached. And like, he doesn't seem like he can really be killed. So I was kind of confused by that. It just seemed like, just based on earlier, when... They shot his head off. He was halfway through transforming into the Nightwalker. Yes. And then when he was getting his head back, he was halfway into transforming into the great forest spirit. And the monk mercenary dude, Jigo, was saying how if they just wait until sunrise, if the Nightwalker doesn't have its head back on, it'll die. And the Nightwalker... I think only like 50% had regrown its head, so it was sort of in a half-life, but then by the time the sun came up, it couldn't fully reform. So it was still there in the forest, it, it helped everything regrow, but maybe it's kind of, like Ashitaka said, just permeating all life, and it's not going to have as 
an overt of a presence anymore, but it will be present in every living thing, mm, kind of. Less corporeal. I think it right. can also go back to a line earlier in the movie that kind of implies uh, Moro says that Okoto's boars are kind of losing their intelligence. They're giving in to their baser instincts, basically becoming more like animals that we would think of in our world who are not driven by the same complex brainwaves that humans are. I think that this movie kind of posits itself as an origin story for the world of today. Like there was this magic that existed that is going away because of how humans are kind of despoiling the environment. And the boars are going to lose their ability for complex thought. The wolves are going to kind of recede back to, you know, a different state where they don't have the same influence over the forest. And maybe the forest spirit is going to still exist, but lose its ability to heal life and to manifest itself in a very overt way. It will just continue to exist kind of in the undercurrents of nature. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Ashitaka, I think in the last few lines, seems to imply that this is kind of part of the forest guardian's plan. Right. Maybe it's a natural cycle of some kind or. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Or just a change that's going to happen regardless. A balancing. Yeah. All right. Well, we've covered a lot here. Why don't we head on over to evil, stupid or misunderstood? Welcome to Evil, Stupid, or Misunderstood, the part of the podcast where we look at the primary antagonist of a film and determine if they were really stupid, or actually pretty misunderstood, or maybe just flat out evil. So guys, who's the primary antagonist of Princess Mononoke? I had a point I wanted to make here. I just thought I wanted to go a little meta with this one and just say it's misunderstanding in general. Oh, I like it. It's the area where people's reason breaks down. They stop listening to reason. They stop trying to find common ground. And they just give in to hatred, fear, and rage. And it's kind of a never-ending cycle. And one misunderstanding begets another, begets another, and feeds into these darker emotions and puts keeps people out of balance with themselves and the other entities around them, I'll say, different types of stakeholders, you know, and with their environment. And that seems to be the true culprit. And that is what Ashitaka is working against throughout the entire movie. He, Like we said, he doesn't villainize any one group or another. He might condemn some people's actions, but he doesn't villainize them as a person he tries to show them another way to be. Yeah, he never seems to completely dismiss somebody's ability to change. Even Jigo at the end. I mean, he says, I don't want to have to kill you, implying that he would kill Jigo if Jigo doesn't let the forest spirit's head out. But he is, even after everything Jigo has done, which some might argue was so much that he is irredeemable, but Ashitaka doesn't see it that way. He still 
gives Jigo the chance to set things right himself. Yeah, he thinks that everybody can be redeemed and that there's good in everybody. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting moment right there as well, where it's like he's showing anyone can be redeemed, but you don't have the time for it in that moment, you know? Right. Like, sometimes you, like, you gotta do what you gotta do. And exactly, like, he kills some of the samurai to save people, but he's bummed about it. He would kill this guy in order to save everybody, but he'd be bummed about it. Yeah, he does kill the samurai when he warns them to stop what they're doing because they are massacring farmers just to, because they can, it seems like, or perhaps Mm -hmm. to steal from them. And, um, little column A, little column B. He sees... It's the samurai way. <laughs> he sees them attacking a woman who's on the ground, and they're going to kill her. And he says, stop what you're doing! And they won't stop. And so he didn't actually intend to kill the man. I think he intended to wound him. Mm-hmm. He shot for the arms. He just didn't know that the arms were going to explode off. Because of his demon, demonic uh, arm. It gives him super strength, and uh, he was surprised by what happened. And he, like Jack said, he was deeply saddened later on, and he said, I shouldn't have gotten involved. Two men were dead because of me. He didn't think, I thought it was kind of interesting, he didn't think about the people that he might have saved. No, he regretted the act of murder. I think a point of that is that's why the demonic strength activated, was because he was doing it. You know, to save that woman, but it was also the act of violence is a representation of, like, his hatred and anger, right? And that's why he got that demonic boon in that moment. So he's kind of focusing on, like, I didn't save them in the right way. Oh, yeah. Maybe you're right. Because he's a negotiator, right? Yeah. He tries, but, I mean, in a moment like that, he had to make a rash decision. It was watch somebody be murdered or try to do something to stop the act of violence yeah and it took violence yeah and that calls back though to that scene where the forest guardian kills the two demon gods because that's the way to handle that situation i guess apparent according to the great spirit so those scenes are a little parallel right yeah yeah that's a good parallel he has to kill those samurai in order to save the farmers And the great spirit has to kill those two demon gods in order to save, I don't know, people, the forest. Yeah. Yeah. Moro and Akoto would have probably killed thousands more, potentially. Worms. (laughs) Delicious worms. I think the villain is kind of like Chelsea was saying, and you also, we're just all saying, the villain of the movie is the moral. The misunderstanding. Yeah, yeah. Misunderstanding is the villain. And that's the kind of the whole point of the film. Yeah. Now, I think you can alternatively say that the real villain of the film is the Emperor, who, like most leaders, are both absent in our story and also incredibly present through their tyrannical behaviors and edicts. edicts. They drive people to do insane and ridiculous things for their own purposes, serving only their greed and selfish whims. And it's pretty much just flat out evil. Yeah. Yeah, there's a scene where 
some of the hunters hunting the great forest spirit are freaking out. Like, oh, you can't look at the Nightwalker. It's a sin. And their leader is basically just saying, like, oh, it's fine. The emperor said it's good. Because in Japan, you know, the emperor is, like, sovereign, divine. Yeah, it's like a god-king scenario in in some respects, right? Yeah, the god-king says it's not blasphemous, then it's all good, you know? Yeah. It's kind of like the hubris of humans. Is what it felt. wasn't and... all good. <laughs> no. It was all bad. I know. All right. Well, then, with that covered, uh, why don't we head into the smithy? Hello, Traveler. Welcome to Ye Old Smithy, the part of the podcast where we forge a rating for the movie after we each share an epic moment or feature. Jack, why don't you tell us your epic moment or feature and then give us a rating from 1 to 10 demonic arrows. <laughs> I knew this would happen. <laughs> I've been preparing. So... I think I'm going to go with an epic feature of the film, which is just my way of saying a series of epic moments that kind of form a theme. It's Ashitaka's patience, I suppose. And when I say this, I mean specifically when people are threatening his life, because it happens so many times in the movie. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. People are constantly like, Hey, you'd better watch your mouth when you talk to her, right? Or I'll shut you up. And then he just kind of ignores it. Yeah. And then constantly, like, the wolf god is like, Oh, I was hoping you'd cry out in your sleep so I could bite your head off and shut you up. He doesn't, like, rise to the occasion any of the times to, like, confront them about it or, like, argue. He just kind of, like, calmly moves along, pretending like they didn't say it. Yeah. We're not pretending like they didn't, but he really just doesn't pay attention to it, you know? He doesn't let it phase him. Exactly. He's, yeah, it's kind of like earlier. I keep talking about how he sees demons and stuff and kind of tries to, like, push that aside because that's kind of his quest, right? Yeah. But he's just threatened so many times. And the same goes when Princess Mononoke, when San has the sword to his throat and she's like i could cut your throat that'd shut you up and then he's just like you're beautiful and she's just kind of like confused stunned i thought that's so good he just like there's a knife directly to his throat and he ignores it yeah the same thing there's a scene in town where a few women who lost their husbands are getting ready to kill san but Ashitaka is carrying her out of the city and one of the women whose husband was killed by San is like, hey, don't take another step or I'll shoot you. And then he just kind of like sizes her up for a sec and then just kind of like starts walking away. Yeah. And she's not going to shoot him, but she gets kind of jump scared and shoots him anyway. And even after being shot, he just kind of like keeps, he pauses for a sec, but he kind of ignores it and keeps going. So even if someone kind of follows through with their threat, he tries not to acknowledge it. Yeah. Which I really like. That's such a cool character trait. <laughs> Real quick, you just made me think of the scene right after that 
when he falls off of you cool and <laughs> one of the wolf pup just like uh shakes his head and his teeth a little bit <laughs> oh, just chew toys him yeah. dude it's so high impact it just like it's so fast snatches his head and just starts ragdolling him around <laughs> drop him drop drop it bad bad boy leave bad. it leave it yeah exactly <laughs> it's so good <laughs> that's really a great moment I yeah, know. but anyway, I should have I, saved that for my epic moment. Oh well, you can cut it if you want. But Coward. Yeah, I just think the way he lives out his beliefs is so cool, and uh, I'm gonna give the movie a ten out of ten. Ten out of ten demonic arrows. This nice. movie is such an awesome journey. Every character is so strong. The morals are so strong. You kind of relate to all sides, and it is so realistic in its morality, and that there's no clear answer to any of the issues. It really speaks to the heart because you relate so much to everything that's going on, you want the best, it plays with your emotions, and it really gives you so much to think about philosophically. And it's such a cool world. I think it's just like a perfect movie, pretty much. 10 out of 10. I wouldn't change a single thing about it. All right. Chelsea, your <laughs> epic moment or feature and your rating? I just have one thing to say. Ditto. No. Um. <laughs> <Same>. Copy, paste. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Cut it. Okay. So... It's funny. You actually said everything. I was the same way. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, okay, my epic thing is going to be a feature, and I just got to highlight those cute, cute Kodamas, those little tree spirits, the the fey folk. They're benevolent beings. They bring good luck. They're very cute, <laughs> um, and I just, I want to see them in real life. <laughs> I I love those little guys and I can't <laughs> it's kind of weird but they they even had little butts and that was very cute too <laughs> definitely everyone loves a tree spirit butt <laughs> yeah. and I liked how they could make, have little uh, expressions too that was nice um, they could smile really big which I loved that was cute so I just love those little guys that's my epic feature, and I agree with Jack. I'm going to give this 10 out of 10 demonic arrows or swords. You could go either way, because both happened, as Jamie pointed out. <laughs> it's a masterpiece. This film is a masterpiece. Beautiful animation. The story, the narrative is realistic and heart-wrenching and uplifting all at once. I I grieved for the end of the forest spirits, but I felt hope when the land was regrowing again at the end. The music is so beautiful and really highlights all of the experiences of the film. It's like I said, it's a true masterpiece, 10 out of 10. How about you, Jamie? 
Oh, I'm glad you asked. My epic moment is actually the very end of the film. When everything's all said and done and the dust has begun to settle, we see Ashitaka and San parting ways. Because up to that point, it really seems like they're going to try to do the shoehorned-in relationship. Like we said, like, Ashitaka talks about how beautiful San is, how she, like, gives him purpose and everything. And and I am glad that the movie does not throw a love story in that would not work. Because the characters at the end realize they can be friends. He says, I'll come visit you, you know, I'm going to help rebuild Irontown. But they are not, like, two people from different worlds who are going to make things work out between them. They are two people from different worlds who realize that their places are not together, that neither of them needs to compromise their own values to make the other one happy. Right. And I really appreciated that the movie did not go down the usual route that we would expect it to go down, which is them ending up as a couple, I guess. After all this shared trauma and everything, I think that that would really spoil the ending. And it's something that a lot of the movies we talk about do and never earn it or pay it off in any satisfying way. And I'm just glad that this movie doesn't force that relationship to become romantic. I like that they are going to probably still be friends, but that's enough. I kind of imagine that Maybe at some point they'll have a love affair, but they'll still kind of stay independent and stay friends. Are you uh, proposing a sequel? Maybe. Maybe we could talk about that. Mm -hmm. So right before we recorded this episode, we watched an episode of Avatar The Last Airbender where they talk about a betrothal necklace. Yes. And we read, or Jamie read on a website, that when Ashitaka is leaving his village, a character who, in the American version that we watched, is his sister giving him a necklace she made. In, I think, the Japanese version, it's his fiance. That's what IMDb said, yeah. That's right. So she's giving him this present of love before he goes away. And then he passes that on to San before he has to go away. So it's like one trinket of love passed to him, and then he gives the trinket of love to her. So there is a possibility for, you know, romantic love there. But I do like that it's kind of left up to the imagination at the end. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, they are not at a point, obviously, after a horrible war to make a decision that big about a relationship. Right. As far as my rating goes, I mean, how can it be anything else? This movie is 10 out of 10 demonic arrows. It is so fucking perfect. This movie rules. Every time I watch it, I like it more. <laughs> it handles the storytelling better than 99% of other fantasy fiction. It is gorgeous on a visual level. It is heart-wrenching and beautiful and emotional without being maudlin. It has moments of humor and tragedy, and it really gives the viewer a lot to think about in the end. And yeah, I mean, I think it is one of my favorite movies, 
just full stop. I think if I was going to make a top five list, this movie would make it on to my top five movies of all time. Possibly top three. Wow. Probably the same for me. Yep. You know what that is? That's 30 arrows in the quiver. Yeah. That's enough to start a war against the Emperor. <laughs> oh, my oh, yes. But before we do that, maybe we should head to the bounty board. The sweat beads on your forehead, the infection spreading farther across your arm from the horrible ooze that drained out of the demon god that you slew. The discoloration spreads across your forearm and begins to form what appear to be letters. Letters that spell out bounties? So I believe Chelsea has a bounty for us this week. That's right. So... We're all on a timeline. A timeline of global climate change. <gasps> and if we're all going to work together to try to stem the tide of this probably mass extinction event, I think it all starts with our perspective. And we could all take a page out of Ashitaka's book and think about ways that we can each live in balance with our environment and with nature. And I think that starts with seeing the beauty in nature and understanding that everything is alive and that we're all connected. And when you think about the trees and other living things, think about how there might be a little forest spirit guarding them. And think about if I kill this plant or this tree, Will that little spirit die? And imagine this cute little spirit that's living there. <laughs> and maybe that'll make you think twice about the way you treat nature and the nature beings around you. And for other listeners who already do make those considerations, there's always a step further we can take it. What can we do to talk to people in our sphere of influence to encourage them to think about nature and act in a way that acknowledges that we're all family and that we're all on this world together and in ways that might bring us more in balance with each other. So, yeah, I think there's a lot we can all do, and it starts with ourselves and our loved ones. So we should all take a moment to think about that and just spend more time out in nature and understand how we're all connected so yeah let's let's do that together i'm on board yeah you you stunned me i can't even make a joke <laughs> sorry it was too sincere that was too beautiful nice that's one forest spirit that i can't kill <laughs> <laughs> yeah something that i saw from uh on an instagram influencer that i follow uh, their handle is Oracle of LA, and that's Amanda Yates Garcia, who is the person who controls that handle. And she is a very sincere witch practitioner. She's also down to earth and a real person, authentic 
and a real human person. <laughs> and she said something that really touched a lot of people, and it was so simple, and it's something we can all keep in mind, you know? She wrote, The world is alive. Magic is real. Nature is enchanted. And I added to that, we are all connected. We are all family. And that's a beautiful chant that you can use for your magical ceremonies. And it's also a mantra that we can use to remind ourselves that, yes, there is magic in the world and everything is alive. And what would happen if we were to treat other beings as our family? Not only other humans, but other plants and animals and other beings that inhabit this world. And what would our reality look like if we treated everything else as family? Why, I suspect it would look a lot nicer. Yeah. <laughs> so that's something that we can all start to bring about. And it starts with each and every one of us deciding to make that change. So. Let's get to it. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. food for thought, or is that... Uh, food for the soul. Or is that fertilizer for thought? Fertilizer for thought, yeah. So that the thoughts can grow out of the poop. <laughs> <laughs> Good analogy, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> the poop of our thoughts become the ideas of tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> you pulled the joke out of there somehow. <laughs> I, I had to do it. <laughs> All we had to say was the poop word. <laughs> yeah, it's a low bar, but damn it, it's all I've got. Well, guys, uh, I think our discussion ran a little long on this movie, so I think this is a good place to wrap things up. But we'd like to thank all of our listeners for joining us on this journey through one of our favorite movies. If you'd like to join in our discussion, feel free to hit us up on social media at Swords and Satire on Instagram or Twitter. Let us know what you thought about the film or about anything we said in the episode or feel free to send us nice letters or... Yeah, an email format. Oh, or an email you can send us to at swordsandsatire at gmail.com. <laughs> if you'd like to get into a deeper discussion and hey, we might even read your episode on the air. Your ideas on the air even. Yeah. What did I say? Episode. Yes. <laughs> Both are true. And, I mean, on the air is not accurate, right? Because we're not live, are we? Nah, it's good enough, though. It Ooh, works. Phew. I was afraid <laughs> there. I fucked up a lot in this one. <laughs> Check us out on Facebook. We've got a great page there. Leave a comment and uh, become a part of that Swords and Satire community. We're happy to have you and to hear your thoughts. Hell yeah. Well, <laughs> and if you're interested, leave your own ideas on a rewriting history. That'd be very cool. Yeah. Well, then, until next time, Hail, Hail Crumb! Crumb.